0: Good morning, afternoon, or evening, wherever or whenever you are, ladies and gentlemen. This is a special episode of Sports Crunch with D. Crom. I'm your host, David Cromwell. 2020 was the year nobody could stick to sports, as they say. With a -a once-in-a-century pandemic, a new reckoning on race, and a consequential election, the sports world ceded the spotlight to the more important world. And today, we will do so one last time on this podcast with a recap of the 2020 election. This election brought mixed results, which is a perfect image of our bitterly divided country right now. But now is the time to start healing those divides by having discussions with people who voted in a different way than you did. And seriously, what better person is there to have such a conversation with than Texas-based Republican strategist Matt Makowiak, the host of the incredible Mac on Politics podcast. Matt, welcome back to the program and congratulations on another excellent Republican performance up and down the ballot in Texas this year.
1: Oh, thank you very much, David. It's great to be back with you.
0: Yeah, great to have you back as well, Matt. And today, just moments ago, just seconds ago, uh, right before we started this recording, the Electoral College ratified uh, President-elect Biden's victory, but the overall election wasn't anywhere close to his rosy for President-elect Biden's own party, as I alluded to in the intro. Democrats lost at least a dozen seats in the House. There are a couple of uh, contested races still up in the air, but it should be around that much. And the Republicans are highly likely to retain control of the Senate, barring a total catastrophe in Georgia on January 5th. And in an era of very few ticket-splitting voters, this initially came as a shock to some. That said, uh, Public Opinion Strategies, uh, Republican uh, polling firm, I'm sure you know a lot of their pollsters over there, they studied a lot of those suburban voters this cycle, and they found that while many of them couldn't stomach voting to re-elect Trump, They also were lukewarm to the policies of the the current democratic party. Do you think it's fair to say that the growing influence of Bernie Sanders, Elizabeth Warren and AOC on the democratic party cost them dearly in the down ballot races?
1: Yeah, I do think that, I mean, I think that, you know, in the swing districts and the swing States that determine the majority in the house and the Senate, but, but you know, the key races where the, where the, you know, both sides were well-funded and were competitive. You saw a lot of ticket splitting, um, and you saw, you know, I think, generally speaking, voters decide that they, you know, maybe maybe narrowly uh, preferred Biden. Uh, maybe they sort of re- returned to normalcy uh, a little bit. Uh, but I think they also said, look, the Democratic Party is a little bit out there. And you know, giving them full control over uh, all three parts of government is, is, is a risk they won't really take. And so I do think uh, the Democrats have risked uh, quite a lot by this, you know, far left push they've been making, um, talking about, you know, if not outright defunding the police, certainly uh, overhauling uh, police departments and reforming how police departments work in a really, really, you know, unbelievable way that I think most people are not comfortable with. Uh, you look at Medicare for all, which is a, you know, a poll tested phrase that they think tests well, but 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 once people understand that it means throwing 100 or 100, 150 million people off their health care, including labor union members who negotiated um, their employment-based health care insurance. Um, that's that's a, that's a non-starter as well. Um, you look at things like cocking the Supreme Court, um, only been tried once in American history uh, by FDR at a time when he had Democratic majorities in the House and Senate. And it's it was probably the single worst political decision he made in his entire career. And when you look now in the history books – it's uh, it's pretty high up on, on on you know on a summary of, of of his presidency, so I do think the Democrats have sort of flirted with you know this very far left vision, if you want to call it socialism, you want to call it progressivism, you know whatever you want to call it. Um, I think on some of these issues, they've let these things dominate um, you know the the Democratic platform, and certainly the Republicans were smart to to define every Democrat on these issues. So. Yeah, you're right, though. Your, your kind of summary at the outset was, was good. I mean, I think Republicans didn't really know what to expect with this election. And I will tell you, a lot of the people i talked to on the sort of activist side were absolutely convinced Trump was going to win. Uh, a lot of the sort of operatives were pretty down on, on you know, the prospects. And in fact, a month out after the first debate and after Trump got COVID and um, kind of had a few weird days there where the White House was kind of doing some strange things, um, the polling really fell through the, through the floor. Um, Trump went from being, you know, down five or six points to being down 12 or even 15 points nationally, and that affected congressional races everywhere. And there was a real panic. But things, you know, a couple of weeks later, things turned around. Trump had a great second, uh, second final debate. Um, he started doing these rallies, four or five of them, you know, a day around the country. There was real momentum. Um, and Biden, you know, didn't didn't match, you know, one tenth or even maybe one one hundredth of that energy and that effort. So it's clear Trump um, kind of caught up a bit at the end. Um, and when you look at, you know, look, this, this election was still close. Now, it was not as close as, as, as it was four years ago in terms of the popular vote. It looks like Biden won by maybe eight million votes uh, compared to, I think, Hillary winning by about five million. But when you look at the, the margin, the raw vote margin in the states that ultimately put Biden over the top, Georgia, Arizona, Pennsylvania, and Wisconsin, those four states, instead of it being 78,000 votes across the three states that gave Trump the presidency, it looks like it was around 100,000 votes generally. In those four states, um, you know, I said on Twitter a couple of days after the election, if, if if Trump really doesn't win Georgia, then he doesn't deserve to be elected, and I, and I believe that. Even though Georgia has been trending in the Democratic direction, it's a state Republicans should have held in 2020, um, and, and we need to examine, you know, why that didn't happen. Uh, the Democrats obviously went after Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, Michigan to try to, to try to rebuild that blue wall, and for to 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 for the you know to a great extent they did that and they did it very effectively. So, yeah, it, it was a unique election. Um, we all obviously had some some interesting uh, developments over the last few weeks. But but now with the Electoral College occurring today, it's pretty clear where this is headed, you know, regardless of uh, whatever legal challenges or legal avenues the president still wants to, to utilize. Joe Biden is going to get sworn in on January 20th. Uh, it was It was appropriate for him to begin getting the intelligence briefing, the president's to a daily briefing. Um, and it's appropriate for the transition to uh, to get up and running and, and, and put in a position so he can be successful when he gets sworn in.
0: I agree with everything you said, but I will also add another thing. Uh, Jake Marsing, another friend of mine, a Democratic strategist, he expected an even closer electoral college race for what it was worth. Uh, when I had him on the show, he was always expecting a much closer race than the uh, polls indicated. and several other uh, Democrats who I read, like uh, former Obama advisor, Dan Pfeiffer. Uh, he predicted Trump would get 46 to 47% of the popular vote. That's exactly where he got. So many Democrats uh, like, uh, well, maybe not enough, but at least some I respect thought that those polls after Trump got COVID were exaggerations, and uh, they were—they turned out to be right. But uh, credit to where credit's due to, uh, to the ground game, and uh, also um, the Justice Barrett, um, who we'll uh, talk about a little later when we talk about the Supreme Court. But uh, this is a very encouraging sign that I—I I saw for Republicans, and this is extremely promising. Uh, I'm talking about the historic amount of minority support President Trump, despite all the racist comments he's made throughout his presidency and his life, he was able to attract a lot of minority support. He received nearly one third of the Hispanic vote, a very similar number your former boss George W. Bush posted. 12% 12% of the black vote, the highest number for Republican in I don't know how long, and uh, this is an underrated vote, it's the fifth night of Hanukkah, The she got over 30% of the Jewish vote, the highest in strength, and if you look at Florida alone, where Jews are a significant slice of the electorate, he got nearly 40% of the Jewish vote, because when you put like, a, you, you can make, make an argument that The Jewish vote in Florida was almost as instrumental as the Hispanic vote in Florida in allowing the president to win Florida by a much larger margin in 2020 than he did in 2016. Why do you think Trump, despite all his um, history of racist comments, was able to make such inroads in all three of those communities? And what do Republicans need to do to grow support among those voters in these next couple election cycles?
1: Yeah, I mean it's it's a great question, and to a great extent, it's it's one of the really important takeaways from the election. It's something Republicans need to study. Um, why did this happen? Uh, what issues drove these voters? How can we uh, consolidate that support and, and, and sustain it in future elections? It's a, it's a really important question. And you went through the numbers very effectively there. I mean, it's it you know Trump obviously did far better with those voters than Democrats thought, far better than than the media thought. I think there's a few reasons for that. I think number one. Certainly among Hispanics in places like South Texas and South Florida, um, there is a very negative uh, feeling about uh, moving towards socialism. Um, and it's, it's not buzzwords, it's not Fox News primetime. It's you know family members who have lived through socialist dictatorships in places like Cuba, uh, in Panama and Nicaragua in the last 30 or 40 years that have come here and, and they've had their own lives directly affected by that kind of government and that kind of dictatorship. So they don't they don't need to be lectured you know by anybody about what socialism is or isn't. Uh, but I would also say I will tell you I, I thought there was a chance he was going to overperform with minority voters, particularly black men and Hispanic men. I said so in the weeks before the election. And one of the reasons I thought that was possible, David, is is it, it took me back to the Republican National Convention, which when that started I kind of thought, oh my God, it's going to be a circus. It's virtual. It's going to be all these Trump sycophants. Not going to be showcasing you know the party the way it should. It's going to be way over the top. I had very low expectations and I was prepared to be underwhelmed. <clears throat> and I watched you know that entire convention and, and honestly, it was brilliantly uh, put together. I mean it was a it was a, a, a work of architecture in, in a way, because they basically you know demonstrated that he had been putting a coalition together quietly and carefully on issues over the last four years that that really most people hadn't focused on. Uh, and while the national media certainly plays up all these things and likes to call him racist, and certainly at times he's been, he's been insensitive or he's had blind spots or he's been outright racist at times. I was you know, never more repelled than, than during the Charlottesville incident, and I know that that's been misstated over, over time, but he, he could have handled that far better than he did. Um, in spite of that, I think in the end, the RNC convention showed that, that they were doing a number of things on issues that actually mattered, whether it's the First Step Act and Alice Johnson, whether it's, uh, you know, you know uh, uh, equal opportunity zones, opportunity zones, excuse me, opportunity zones in, in, in urban areas, whether it's historic support to uh, HBCUs, uh, you know, you kind of go down the list. And I think with Hispanics, I think it was partly the pro-life issue, which, you know, Hispanics are overwhelmingly like 75, 80, 85 percent Catholic, which means they're, they're you know, 85 percent, 90 percent pro-life. Um, but I think it's also that while they may not love every little thing he's ever said or done about immigration, that they generally believe that laws need to be enforced and that the border needs to be secure. Um, do they want a 20-foot you know wall across the entire southern border? No, uh, and that's not that's not what I believe should be the priority either. I believe we need a border wall in the urban areas where there's high traffic, and in the rural areas which are rugged, uh, it makes far more sense to to utilize more inefficient more efficient excuse me. Uh, And affordable options, um, you know, like like technology and personnel and things like that. So um, I think he just was building this very interesting coalition, Um, certainly on on, you mentioned Jewish voters, which I think didn't get very much attention. But, you know, I can tell you, tell you one thing, you know, Jewish voters, particularly Jewish activists in the United States and around the world, recognize that President Trump has been the most pro-Israel president of the United States in history, period, in a sense. And it's not even really a debate at this point. And it's going to be interesting to see how how, uh, president-elect or soon-to-be President Joe Biden um, addresses that because I think he wants to be pro-Israel, but his party does not want to be pro-Israel right now. They want to be pro-Palestine, and they certainly want to be pro-Iran, which I believe is fundamentally anti-Israel. So um, you're right. It's a great question. We've got to stay focused on values. We've got to stay focused on issues that that move these voters, and we've got to, to keep up the outreach. Uh, and I will say, I think the Trump campaign did a great job on minority outreach, and the Biden campaign did an atrocious job.
0: Very, very uh, interesting uh, observations there, Matt. And uh, another parallel I see with the, the Democrats' leftward trend, and uh, and this relates to the Jewish vote, is the warning sign of what Jeremy Corbyn did with Labor in, in the UK. Because Jeremy Corbyn took that party so far to the left, and uh, his uh, and how he like made a lot of sympathetic comments to. Um, um Hamas terrorists um um a lot of uh, Jewish voters in America are prob- are frightened that the Democratic Party might be Corbynizing itself uh, d- uh, d- do you understand that point of view
1: so- I do I-, I do uh it's it's, it's uh you know the Corbin it was so over the top <clears throat> that an extreme um that I it's hard for me to imagine a Democratic Party that that would ever go to that to those lengths uh, I mean, it's not even a controversial statement to say that Jeremy Corbyn is out, absolutely uh, anti-Semitic and has, has uh, you know made anti-Semitic comments and supported anti-Semitic causes and been fundamentally pro uh, anti-Israel throughout his, much of his adult life. And that's really not even a, a point of debate anymore. And I think it's a big part of why the last national election went so 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 decisively against Labour and why he was you know so summarily dismissed as as a party leader. Um, I don't think that the Democrats are, are to that extent by any means. Um, I do think there are legitimate debates. You know, they, they have one point of view, particularly as it as it relates to a two-state solution and to uh, the capital of, the, of, of Israel being Jerusalem and the Iran deal. And the Republicans have another. And so, you know, I I think it gives Republicans a tremendous opportunity to grow that vote in the future. Um, and if Jewish voters, you know, Jewish voters may be not aligned with Republicans on some issues, maybe the environment, maybe they're not all pro-life to the same extent, or they believe in women's reproductive freedom, maybe they're more liberal on health care, other issues. But, you know, I, I really do think that it's a, it's a huge potential for growth for the, for the future Republican Party. Uh, and it's one we've got to stay focused on.
0: And uh, President-elect Biden's victory will not be officially official until January 6th, when Congress tallies all 538 electoral votes. And as the New York Times uh, reported yesterday, House Republicans plan to object to the vote of the six states that flipped the presidency to Biden. And at least two uh, Republican senators, uh, Ron Johnson of Wisconsin and Rand Paul of Kentucky, are open to signing on, which if they do, means the full Congress will debate the objection. Although this effort is all but guaranteed to fail, it... Uh, can't be argued that it will be another debasement of our republic's uh, democratic institutions. But that said, from a political standpoint, to play devil's advocate here, House and said Republicans who don't go along with this risk exposing themselves to a primary challenge from a QAnon member or worse, dare I say. So I definitely understand what a lot of these Republicans are thinking. And as a political strategist that advises Republicans, what is your advice to some congressional Republicans on how to not alienate the base, yet respect the sanctity of our institution simultaneously?
1: Yeah, it's it's a needle you have to throw at this point, right? It's it's increasingly, you know, undeniable that Joe Biden is going to get sworn in on January twentieth. Um, particularly a, a, after the Texas lawsuit was was, uh, you know, it was not granted cert by the Supreme Court on on the stand on the basis of not having uh, standing. You know, that that really sort of put a, the final nail in the coffin. You know, my my own view is that it's it's you know, legitimate questions about. Uh, you know, you know, processes and law election laws and state constitutions and mail ballots. I'm in favor of seeing evidence. Um, I don't know that I want to be friends with a person who says they don't want to even look at evidence of voter fraud. What I'm not in favor of is is people putting false or incomplete or, you know, gaslit material, gaslit material on on social media that doesn't have your data behind it. Um, I think voter fraud is real. But we've seen it in Texas. It's been It's being prosecuted today as we speak uh, in a number of cases. There was a woman in the Dallas-Fort Worth area just three weeks ago that was indicted for 142 cases of voter fraud. That's one woman, one time. Does that mean that it's widespread? depends a little bit on your definition of widespread. I don't believe it is massive, overwhelming widespread. No, I don't. Do I believe that the potential for that to occur with – millions and millions and millions of mail ballots being sent out? I do, and I'll tell you why I, I why why I think it's legitimate to question um, the mail ballots, right? I think number one, chain of custody is a huge problem, right? When you vote in person, there is no chain of custody, right? Depending on what system your, your state has, your county has, you're almost surely literally seeing your ballot inserted into the machine that counts it, right? So there was no one else ever had your ballot, Right. Your ballot was printed the second you got there. You make your choices. You you enter the the ballot in the machine. and It's over. Mail ballots. That's not the case. Somebody's at home. They open it. They fill it out. They put it back in their in their post their their post box and post office mailbox. And it goes somewhere. And someone touches it. And it goes somewhere else. And eventually, it gets to that machine. No one knows where it goes. How many people it touches. If it's ever opened. If it's ever correctly inspected. And I'm not trying to be conspiratorial. I'm just saying the chain of custody is fundamentally a problem with mail ballots. The bigger problem I have is two things. One mail ballots at this level simply could not be done efficiently and effectively with integrity with two or three months for an election. Every, you know, Democrats like to point to, well, what about Colorado? What about Oregon? These states vote hundred percent by mail. Yeah. They didn't create their system in two months. They've been doing it for years and years and years and actually they've been doing it for decades. And so the reason you can't do it in two months is not only is it a question of, of literally being able to mail, the, you know, physically mail the ballots; it's even more a data question. How often are you cleaning up your voter rolls? The Democrats describe that as purging voters or suppressing voters. If you don't have accurate data, then you're mailing ballots to people who shouldn't be ballot who shouldn't be voting because they cannot cast legal ballots. You have to be confirming the people that that are on your list are registered voters and they do live, you know, in the state or in the district that they're voting in. So. I think there's a, there's a really strong argument made on data, and there's a really strong argument to be in attorney of custody. Up to this point, much to my, my disappointment, the president's legal team has not made compelling arguments on voter fraud. We just, they just haven't. And I really thought even if they couldn't find enough to overturn the result, I thought this was a tremendous opportunity to take two months to out and raise money, to hire really good lawyers, and to press the case. In, in a number of these states and a number of these jurisdictions. And they really haven't done that. And it's an absolute failing. Um, and unfortunately, I think a third, maybe a third of this country is going to view this result as illegitimate uh, once Biden is sworn in. I'm not going to be one of those people. Uh, I'm happy calling President elect Biden today. I think it's pretty clear. But I'm also not, what I'm not comfortable saying is that the president should give up on all of his legal options at this point. I'm not comfortable with that either. Now, he was up to this point failed in every way you can possibly fail through the courts and his legal team has been abysmal it's going to go down in history as one of the absolute worst and he really needed one of the absolute best uh to to separate the ridiculous from the important uh and they haven't done that
0: oh oh absolutely not and uh i've been tweeting that uh lynn wood cindy powell and rudy Giuliani should never be hired by another presidential campaign ever again
1: Well, of course not. And, you know, now it's, I think, even a bigger question than that, right? I mean, who who would hire Rudy for anything at this point? Sidney Powell has really not covered herself in glory. And I don't know who Jen Ellis is or what her qualifications are, but I think that that they're pretty minimal.
0: Um, Absolutely. And uh, there, and uh, voila, we have, we have agreed on something. Um, I um, am, I'm not a Democrat. I'm an independent. Um, I, um, I'm a former Republican, but I left the party for reasons I'll explain later. But, uh, it, but in order to move forward, uh, In healing our country, Republicans have to acknowledge that there's no evidence of extremely rampant voter fraud, but Democrats have to acknowledge that it happens more often than you think, and it could um, make the difference in a Florida 2000 type of race. And that's why we need to uh, swallow hard and uh, come to a consensus on uh, what to do going forward. And we'll talk about that in a little bit. But the thing about Joe Biden, which appealed to a lot of those suburbanites, was he was uh, vowing a return to normalcy in the political discourse, and... Uh And uh, he and uh, and one of the main reasons why the Republicans are likely to keep the Senate is because that they voters believe that that will provide uh, Biden an opportunity to do uh, just that. But let's look at his cabinet picks so far. And uh, there's some fear uh, on the left that uh, the Republican Senate's going to hold all these nominees hostage unless Biden like uh, caves into a major demand. But uh, let's be realistic here. Which ones of Biden's cabinet picks so far are likely to pass a Republican-controlled Senate and which, if any, are uh, dead on arrival?
1: Yeah, so it obviously you know, depends a bit on what we see in Georgia on January 5th, um, because if it's a tie, 50-50 tie with Harris breaking the tie, the Democrats will control the floor. They'll be able to bring those nominations out. They'll be able to confirm judges. Um, that'll be significant. If they only win one or, or even none, none of the two suits, uh, that's a different situation. It's a 51-49 or 52-48 majority. It's still pretty narrow, and I think Mitt Romney, Lisa Rakowski, and Susan Collins are going to band together on a few things here or there and are going to provide the, the votes the Democrats need to do some things. Um, do I think it'll be legislative things? No, I don't. Uh, do I think it'll be uh, cabinet nominees and a few judges? Yes, generally I do. Um, so, So I guess the question is which cabinet nominees – are at risk and i would probably put maybe three or four of them you know in that category right i think number one i do think there's going to be a, a, a battle for De- tony blinken who's been nominated to secretary of state and while i think substantively he's he's qualified and he's he served joe biden for 20 or 25 years um i don't remember every role he's ever been in i think he might have been a one-time national security advisor if not he was certainly deputy i believe he was i believe he was deputy secretary of state for hillary if i remember correctly um the problem for him is that he has been working at a firm that that basically does foreign lobbying you know they just they, they they basically describe it as advising corporate advising governmental advising they don't you know they they, they basically kind of do everything they can that goes right off the line of lobbying, i mean that's fine but if you've been advising foreign governments number one if you've been lobbying you have to uh register with 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 far the foreign agent Re- registration act uh this is one of the things that got mike mike Flynn in trouble because he was lobbying if i remember on behalf of turkey uh, towards the end of, of the 2016 county year, problem for Blinken is, is his firm has said we got NDAs, we have non-information, or excuse me, non-disclosure uh, agreements with a number of these foreign countries. We can't disclose it, and we're not going to disclose it. And I'm just going to tell you that's going to be a fight. Now, is that a big enough problem that it prevents Blinken from getting 50 votes plus the vice president? I don't know. I don't know, but we're going to see how that gets worked out. Secretary of State is such a big job. I just I'm, I'd be surprised if Biden would nominate. Someone who couldn't get confirmed. I mean, it would be a crippling uh, defeat. So I think he's number one. Number two, you know, I do think there's going to be a battle for, for for a woman named Mira Tandon, she yep. has been nominated White House Budget Director. Um, you know, it's, it, most people don't know what the Office Management Budget is. Uh, don't care about it if they do know about it. Uh, it is probably one of the five most powerful jobs in Washington. Every penny that goes to the federal government goes through OMB. OMB, you know puts together the president's budget, takes care of everything related to how funds get spent, uh, and weighs in on every major policy policy decision. I mean, it is a massive, massive job. And Mira Tanden has been uh, an establishment Democrat for a long time. She advanced a lot of the Russia uh, you know, attacks on President Trump, and she has been really a burr on the side of Bernie Sanders and the progressive left for a long time. And so it's interesting to see whether three or four of those progressive senators Maybe hold out. I think the Republicans very well may, may hold out. And part of that is that ten that has been using a Twitter account to attack Republican senators for a very long time. And so that doesn't make you want to be overwhelmingly bipartisan. Um, I think the HHS secretary nominee, Javier Becerra, who was in the Democratic leadership, who was a member of Ways and Means from, uh, from, from California, uh, in leadership as well. I forget what his role was at the, at the moment. He might have been a policy chair in the House.
0: Uh, yeah, he's um, attorney he's general president. now.
1: He's attorney general of California now. Exactly, a statewide elected official. Um, you know, HHS is going to have have some some things ahead of them. You know, what's going to happen on the Mexico City policy, which is the question of whether federal funds can be provided for abortion. Where is he on Medicare for all? Where is he on Obamacare? Um, you know, I think those those policy questions are going to be a big issue. And I know he's been very anti-life. He's been very pro-choice, as a lot of Democrats are. But just gets to you know, conscious protections and whether you have to require abortion coverage and, in, in, uh, you know, health care plans, these kinds of issues. I'm just telling you, these issues are coming up and these fights are ahead. Do I think Biden is going to be 100 percent on cabinet? No, I think he doesn't. They're going to lose one or two people. I don't know exactly who, exactly when, exactly why, but I, it wouldn't surprise me if one or two of them fall short. Um, I think it'll probably be the list I'm, that I'm referencing and, and we'll have to see who else he nominates in some of the other roles. I will say, finally, they've had a hell of a time putting this team together. And we don't know who the EPA administrator is going to be. We don't know who the Energy Secretary is going to be. We don't know who the Commerce Secretary is going to be. We don't know who the major ambassadors are going to be. We don't know who the ambassador of the U.N. is going to be. Uh, but we're missing a lot of the other, you know, still a lot of uh, the like cabinet y- roles. Linda
0: Thomas-Greenfield is the U.N. ambassador oh, appointing.
1: You, 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 you're right. You're right. I'm sorry. You're right. African-American mm-hmm. female. Yeah. Uh, but in some of the other cabinet roles, we don't know. But, 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 uh, but what I will say is they, they've not done well nominating uh, african-americans to senior roles in fact i think you can basically argue at this point there is not one african-american who is in a senior role in the binder in the incoming biden administration either as a senior white house staffer or, or as a cabinet at a cabinet level they do have linda thomas greenfield at the ambassador u.n they have said he's going to elevate that to to, to ambassador fine or to cabinet fine their deputy treasury sector i believe is african-american uh, Cedric Richmond is leaving the U.S. House to, to become White House director of, of, I believe they're calling it public engagement, I want to say. Not even sure it is it uh, is. He's not an assistant to the president, and he's not going to be, uh, he should be chief of staff or deputy chief of staff, not doing a job that uh, I'm not even sure ever existed. So it is interesting because without black voters, Joe Biden not only is not president, but he's not the nominee. I mean, the black voters resurrected his candidacy in South Carolina when he was left for dead along the side of the highway. So, look, they've had some difficulty, but I would would say one last thing on the cabinet, and that is that that Biden's choices have not been as extreme as I thought they were going to be. I thought he was going to put some left-wing people in uh, some of these cabinet roles, and the progressives are not happy. Uh, They really feel like they're getting a lot of sort of Obama retreads, a lot of sort of corporate types, Wall Street types, and they have a lot to be angry about. They really do. Now, uh, Biden, I don't think, is a far-left progressive. I don't think he wants to govern that way. I think he, in his heart of hearts, really does want to bring the country together. But he's going to have to work with Republicans, particularly Mitch McConnell, to do that. And I think if he does do that, uh, he can be successful. Um, but it's going to be interesting because I think all the action is going to be on the Democratic side. Pelosi's going to have an eight or ten seat majority. It's going to be very difficult to navigate and for her to hold votes, hold the votes that she needs. Um, and the, the margin, in the sense, is going to narrow, but McConnell's going to have uh, you know, a strong, uh, strong hand, I think. And, and then you add to that, what, what is Biden going to do with executive orders? You know, he has basically signaled that he doesn't want to use executive orders the way Trump and, and even Obama have, He wants to be more, more uh, disciplined about it, more, you know, use them in more limited circumstances. Well, a lot of what Trump did was executive orders. So if he's not going to be aggressive, the, the left and the progressive left are not going to accept that. So there are some warning signs for Biden as this thing gets started. There really are.
0: Um, there they're most certainly are And uh, you, you bring up a good point Regardless of what happens in Georgia uh, next month uh, A lot of the fever dreams of the progressives When it comes to the Senate Even if they do win those two Georgia seats Are highly unlikely to come true Joe Manchin says he will not tolerate um, Getting rid of the legislative filibuster Or packing the court Which means that uh, even if it's 50-50 Senate Mitch McConnell is still going to have A lot of filibustering power uh, on his hands So that is a very, very important point uh, You made there, Matt And uh, after the election, I was kind of talking with a, a, a friend. And uh, I, I would kind of describe the election this. Uh, I remember um, on the night uh, Justice Ginsburg passed away, you um, retweeted somebody by saying that uh, let's hope uh, she and uh, Justice Scalia, polar opposites ideologically, but the best of friends, are reunited and resting comfortably. It's kind of like they were looking down on us the whole time, and they sent a lightning bolt. Um, uh, 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 t- into, into the ground and, uh, which produced this election outcome by saying, get your act together. Um, uh, restore faith in these institutions that we champion, even though we disagreed a lot on ideological grounds or else the Republic's going to be in trouble. And, uh, And Joe Biden, and given his uh, prior relationship with Mitch McConnell, it would be a nice opportunity to restore some normalcy to the judicial nominating process. And uh, although uh, there's an argument to be made, McConnell was uh, hypocritical in how he handled Barrett versus how he handled the uh, Scalia vacancy. Uh, It's important to know, um, I believe, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, the Democrats were prepared to do the exact same thing to George W. Bush during his final two years in the White House. Is that correct?
1: I believe that's correct, yeah.
0: Uh, Yes, so we're going to have to, like, really um, uh, bring it back to normal, as uh, the two late justices uh, would wish. And uh, Stephen Breyer is uh, long in the tooth, and uh, many people believe he might retire within the next two years. And uh, if you have to get a nominee through a Republican-controlled Senate, especially if it's a moderate, do you think the Republicans would be willing to hold hearings and consider the nominee, or do you think uh, they will do what they did with the Scalia vacancy in 2016?
1: Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, uh, I think it's going to depend a little bit on when it happens, and uh, you know, you do have divided government again. So that McConnell standard of of not nominating and, and confirming a Supreme Court justice in an election year, when you have divided government, would stand in twenty twenty four. Now, if it, it, would, it would occur before that, that 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 would that standard wouldn't apply. But no, look, I, I don't I don't believe that the Senate, the Republican Senate, would confirm judges at one you know fourth or one third even of the pace. That they had last few years, but I don't. I also don't believe they're going to, you know, shut everything down either. I think it's going to be a bit of a negotiation. And if Biden puts, you know, reasonable, more mainstream people forward, I think they're going to be willing to to move them. Um, But if he puts, you know, radical left wing people forward, I think the Senate is not going to move them.
0: Oh, with, oh, without a doubt. Like I said, it would require somebody to the left of Anthony Kennedy, but uh, kind of like in the Merrick Garland neighborhood um, with, in 2021 or 2022 to replace a Stephen Breyer uh, in those circumstances. And, uh, and back to the Supreme Court um, uh, for, for just a second, like uh, I, for the record, I have disagreements with the Justice Barrett on uh, quite a bit of policy issues that she'll be ruling on, but um, Throughout the confirmation process and how she introduced herself to our her nation, I saw somebody just kind of like Warren Hatch saw with Ruth Bader Ginsburg, somebody who was rational, who was um, articulate, who was respectful of institutions, who cared about crafting healthy relationships with ideological opposites just like she did. And she even in her speech when Trump gave her the nomination, says it, she implied that if it wasn't for Ruth Bader Ginsburg, I wouldn't be where i am today so she, she's she, and uh, when you look at her personal story the fact that she adopted two kids from haiti that is just uh, <clears throat> uh, you can't think of anything more american than that and i strongly opposed uh, the refugee policy of this administration and she um adopted two refugee children of her own and uh at, at, at uh, and just like um, her protege, uh, Justice Scalia, uh, I have an uncle who's more to the left of me. He said, I didn't agree with Scalia all the time, but he arrived at his conclusions logically. Amy Coney Barrett is no different. And uh, just like Orn had with Ruth Bader Ginsburg, I see with Amy Coney Barrett, I disagree with you on many things, but I admire you and you have earned the right to send the Supreme Court. How much is it going to take for majority of America to act that way again?
1: Yeah, it's a good question. Um, I don't know. I mean, I feel like these fights over the Supreme Court have really, really become radicalized, and um, it's just hard to hard to know where that goes from here. Uh, you know, Barrett was not a controversial choice. She was an outstanding quali- and qualified jurist, and she, you know, still only got I want to say fifty three or fifty four votes. You know, Scalia passed ninety nine to zero when he was confirmed. Uh, RBG, I think, was a hundred to zero. Um, so. Clearly, the, the, the country's changed and, and the political environment has changed in such a way now that you cannot vote for a judge, even if they're qualified, for the highest court in the land, uh, if you disagree with them. And I, I think that's problematic. Uh, you know, I actually think if Biden were, were to get a Supreme Court non, uh, vacancy and nominate a reasonable choice, that, that that person could get 60 or 70 or 80 votes, potentially. And if that were to happen, you know, that would be more impressive than Scalia going ninety nine zero twenty 20 years ago, 25 years ago, because things have changed a lot. So we'll see. You know, it's a lot of this is going to just depend on how things sort of, you know, develop over time, but uh, the uh, radicalization of the Supreme Court nomination process is one of the worst things to the, that have developed in American politics in recent years.
0: It most definitely is, and I was trying to make it clear to a lot of people that Amy Coney Barrett Uh, was a nominee that any Republican would have nominated to replace uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg in any year. Don't you think if uh, your former boss, George W. Bush, were president uh, uh, over these uh, past four years that our seat became available, don't you think he would have nominated Amy Coney Barrett or somebody very much like her to to replace Ginsburg?
1: Yeah, I do. Um, I do. Absolutely. Um, I thought she was a mainstream choice and, and she got confirmed for the Seventh Circuit and had been You know, a a, a highly credible, impressive person before that in her life and in her career. So, but look, it was a significant confirmation. There's just no question about it. I mean, when you look at Trump's legacy, the things that are going to last, the tax cuts are going to last until someone does something about it. Uh, But executive orders are probably not going to last a lot of them. Certainly, maybe not all of them, but, but, uh, you know, a good number of them. Uh, Biden's going to begin undoing them on day one. Um, Rebuilding the military, I think that'll last at least for a while. Um, I think some of the work in the Middle East uh, on normalization of of relations in a number of places in the Middle East, I think, is going to last. But the judges are going to last for for a very long time uh, because they they confirmed every single vacancy. 200 or so now judges have been confirmed at all levels. Three Supreme Court justices. uh, And they're going to be there. A lot of them are in their 40s. They're going to be there 20, 30, 40 years as a lifetime appointment. So it's a huge part of his legacy. And the Republican Senate deserves a lot of credit. They knew they couldn't get 60 votes for a lot of legislative issues. So they decided to not waste time and instead focus on judges and we'll see whether the Democrats, uh, you know, if they were to get their majority, I don't think they would devote the same time to judges uh, with a democratic president in the white house uh, as Republicans did with a Republican president in the white house.
0: Um, th- uh, there'll be pressure too, but with the uh, Joe Manchin's sake, he's unequivocally against uh, abolishing the legislative filibuster and pegging the Supreme court. Definitely not going to happen regardless of what happens uh, in Georgia. Uh, as I said earlier, and, uh, uh, And now it's time to um, have a little bit more of a difficult discussion here. And I will explain to you why I, as an independent who has voted for Republicans many times in the past, voted against President Trump uh, in 2020. The main reason Mm -hmm. why I voted against him was, in my opinion, he posed an existential risk to our very democratic republic. And even with his defeat, I remain extremely frightened that the United States remains on the fast track to another civil war. Potential split into two different countries or a full-blown dictatorship or autocracy unless reforms to our electoral system are made. And no, I am not for expecting the size of the Supreme Court. Ruth Bader Ginsburg would not like that. As a matter of fact, honor their wishes um, there. And uh, I am not for abolishing the Electoral College. Andrew Yang himself, who, as I tweeted today, he's even more liberal than Hillary Clinton. And I responded to Hillary Clinton's tweet today by saying, Andrew Yang, who is more liberal than Hillary Clinton, is he thinks that we should fix the Electoral College but not nix it. And I think one of the main miracles American democracy has survived this long, democracies rarely survive this long, it's important to know, is because of our federalist-oriented system that forced us to compromise and not... Uh, add progress slowly but surely, as opposed to radical shifts in in, in either direction. That's, I think, uh, arguably a big reason why we've survived uh, this long, and that's why we have an electoral college. That's why we have a United States Senate uh, and things of that sort. Because the founders um, were very fearful of popular will. They wanted majority governance, but they did not want majority rule, and um, and thus, uh, I uh, tweeted uh, in the in the past week. That uh, both parties are going to have to swallow very hard and reach a compromise on election reform, voting election administration, or else I fear our republic's going to collapse. And both parties are going to have to get what they desire here. Like I said, Republicans there is, have to acknowledge that there is no evidence of rampant voter fraud, but Democrats have to acknowledge it happens more often than they admit. So my solution is this. We... Democrats want expanded polling places in areas that need more, like, lower-income and minority neighborhoods. And, uh, and do Texas-style, the Georgia-style, in-person early voting with the time that they, they do those statewide. That would be a, a good, two good national standards. But as uh, Congressman Dan Crenshaw suggested, um, and he's somebody I barely agree with, he said that we should have nationwide voter ID, but we should be able to provide assistance to those people who have difficulty accessing such I.D. to obtain one, like uh, l- like lower income and minority people. That is more than fair. To, uh, that's not a poll tax. That's, uh, th- if you're helping people get their I.D.s, it's not a poll tax at all. That uh, completely eliminates the concern John Lewis had about those laws. And in terms of mail or absentee ballots... Um, you can't do national universal vote by bail. That would be an egregious 10th Amendment violation. And you know, this current Supreme Court is going to make strengthening that 10th Amendment a number one priority, or at least at the very top of list uh, of priorities, given the, the rival justice Uh If you want it, uh, if you do have a mail or absentee system, we recommend you send them out like around Labor Day to give people enough time to fill them out. But Require them to be returned by poll closing time on election day, so we don't have some, uh, uh, so we don't have like some last minute drama to lower the risk for the last minute drama. Uh, outlaw third party ballot collection, ballot harvesting, Acorn. You can't go by um, random houses and collect 50 ballots at will. Heck, ballot harvesting, voter fraud. It helped Democrat. It, 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 it was to the detriment of Democrats in the North Carolina election for crying out loud. They. Uh, uh, there's no reason not to put a common-sense um, r- restriction on that let the states uh, take care of the rest, whether they want to drop boxes or not, uh, but that's where state decide. And uh, as jo- Josh Hawley said, in return for um, uh, that severe restriction on ballot harvesting, require states to begin processing absentee ballots at least a week before election day, like I said, so we don't have the commotion we had this year. Uh, and when it comes to state legislatures, I don't like what the Republicans were doing asking, uh, state legislatures to short circuit the popular vote of their state, uh, this year. I don't like, but I don't like what the Democrats are doing with this, uh, popular vote compact either. You can't do it. There, there, there are two sides of the same poisonous coin. You got to honor the popular will in your state at the electoral college. Either time, legislatures should have no right to do that. And, uh, Amend the Electoral Count Act to require Congress to, to uh, uh, make the duty more ministerial, especially if uh, it becomes a clown show on January 6th. But we should also take away the House's power to decide contested congressional races like the 2nd uh, Congressional District in Iowa, where uh, Mil- Miller-Meeks, uh, the Republican, only prevailed uh, by six votes. And, uh, and even uh, Chris Hayes said that what Rita Hart's doing is a bad idea, and Chris Hayes is uh, more liberal than uh, moderate. Uh, and... Uh, so, if we take away that house power, that completely um, uh, makes electoral nullification much harder to achieve. And um, so you, you kind of get it. That's kind of what a such a compromise would like would look like in my view. What do you think of such a compromise?
1: <clears throat> yeah, this is something I thought about too. and I appreciate you know the list you put together there, which I think is reasonable and, and I think pulls from different things both sides want. And look, that's, that's what you need in any kind of compromise, right? You need both sides to feel like they got something of value, uh, but also that either side gets everything they want. Uh, it's got to be win-win, and to a certain extent, it's also got to be lose-lose, right? That's what, a, that's what a compromise is. So I agree with you, though, that sort of the you know, doubts about the process in this election are going to remain, and unless the country, at least the, the legislature, the, the U.S. Congress you know, takes that on, um, you know, we're going to have real problems. And uh, so I, you know, I, I agree with a lot of what you said. Uh, I definitely think we got to be much more serious about ballot harvesting. Um, I agree with you. We got to start counting uh, absentee ballots. You know, the, the, the days when the, when they start coming in, I mean, Ohio and Florida did that, and we had their results within a couple of hours. I was confident on until it. It days and days and days. And so, Yeah, you know, before the election, David, I actually kept saying my biggest fear was that it was going to appear Trump won on election night, and that that he was going to lose a few days later. And that we would be unable to know with certainty whether that um, shift occurred legitimately or illegitimately. And I think at this point, most people, having reviewed this and looked at it and looked at the legal arguments made and how the courts have reviewed these issues, have come to the conclusion that Biden legitimately won the election. Um, but it's it's not, certainly no guarantee, and you're going to still have 30 percent of the country probably that's going to not have you know see this result as legitimate. And you know, could, could that have been prevented? Uh, it's possible. Um, I think that the um, the mail ballot situation, you know, deserves some study. And and if if, if legitimate evidence is found, um, it needs to be brought out. And and if laws are broken, there need to be prosecutions. And people people engaged in voter fraud, they need to be prosecuted as well. But if not, then it's important that people who may doubt that Biden really won, but who don't have evidence that he that he that he lost. Uh, it's, it's important that they accept the results of the election and that we move forward because Joe Biden's going to get sworn in on January 20th. Um, there's no, not much doubt about that now, as, as long as he doesn't have, you know, as long as he doesn't die between now and then, he's going to get sworn in on January 20th. Um, so we've got to start, you know, thinking about what happens after yeah. he gets sworn in.
0: Uh, yes. And, uh, and also, uh, uh, do you think it uh, makes sense to provide assistance for, uh, lower income people to obtain voter IDs if we do pass a national voter ID law?
1: Uh, I, yeah. Look, I, I, I the model that I like is the Texas model, um, and, and what we've done in Texas is we passed photo ID three or four uh, sessions ago, you know, six or eight years ago, and it's worked great. And I'll tell you how part of how it's worked is we make we make non-driver's licenses, basically governmental photo IDs, available for free. Period. Um, now. Could you argue that someone who's low income or someone in a really rural area, that it's more of a burden for them to go acquire that governmental ID? Sure. Uh, you can't make things you know, you know effortless, effortless for everybody. That's just not possible. But I also sort of reject this idea that there are millions and millions and millions of Americans going through their daily lives who don't have a, a photo ID. I mean, when you look at the list of things you can, you, you, you can do only if you provide a government ID, a photo ID, it's a pretty long list, right? To be someone who does not have a photo ID and could not vote without a photo ID, you'd have to be someone who has never taken a prescription medicine. And you'd have to be someone who's never flown on a commercial flight. And you'd have to be someone who's never uh, accepted government benefits, right? Right. Yeah. You know, the list goes on and like, you keep going, right? There's all these things in life. You, you you know, you have to be someone who's never had a passport, who's never had a visa, who's never dot, da da. It goes on and on and on. Right. And, and so you're getting down to a subset of a subset of a subset where you're really talking about a very, very small number of people. Um, so but that said, the state of Texas found a way to do it. I don't see why other states can't find a way to do it. So, um, yes, I would love a photo ID system. Uh, I think it's ridiculous. You have to show an ID to buy alcohol or to buy you know, buy cigarettes or to go into a club, you know, the, a, a nightclub. I mean, you know, we, those systems in some ways have, you know, greater greater verifications of identity than our our, our current elections do, and that's really quite ridiculous.
0: Uh, yes, and the fact that uh, you uh, give those IDs for free in Texas, um, like I said, it takes the poll tax argument off the table, and as long as uh, we uh, keep improving yep. on it and making sure the low-income minority people, Get more and more access to obtaining such IDs. Then um, I'm all for it. And uh, but one problem that remains is uh, people having to wait in line for five hours to vote. And uh, that's why uh, I think we need to open more polling places in the places that uh, need them the most. Do you think uh, Republicans would be willing to go along with such compromise? Like we pass voter ID, but we also have to open more um, polling locations uh, in the places that uh, need it the most.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Now, of course, you know these things are decided at the local level. They're decided by counties, right? There's this there's this idea that people have, it's a, mis- it's a misunderstanding, you know, that we have national elections. We don't. We have 50 state elections, but actually, we don't even have 50 state elections. We have, I don't even know the number of counties. You know, 3,000 counties in this country hold their own election, and those counties, you know, in Texas, it's a county clerk, and other places it might be a regist- voter registrar, or something. Um, But whatever it is, it's usually an appointed or elected official who runs the elections, either for the state or for the counties. Uh, And those counties are the ones that decide how many locations they have, how many are for early voting election day, and how many mobile voting sites they have, and how much they need. I agree with you. Look, it's absurd that anyone would have to wait even longer than one hour to vote. Now, I would encourage everyone, there's no reason to wait. Go vote. Your state, almost all states have early voting. And early voting, the lines are far shorter because uh, you can pick the day and the time right it's not election day itself where a lot of people feel you know like it's patriotic to vote on election day and if that's what you want to do you can do it but you're putting yourself in a position where you're competing with all these other people that are also trying to vote when i vote on, i usually vote early voting the first or second day there's never anybody there uh it takes me less than 15 minutes it's painless but i agree with you we need more locations and um i think it is an unreasonable burden to ask someone to wait in line for more than an hour to conduct uh, a constitutional, you know, fundamental constitutional right of of voting and of expressing their views. So uh, I don't know how I don't really know what Congress can do about that. I mean, if if it's a funding issue, that's something we can look at. Uh, But really, it's a question of whether these counties are doing what they need to do. Do they have the support they need? Uh, There have to be ways to improve this. I can tell you you one thing. This is the difference between the private sector and government, right, on some level. Right. You would never wait in five lines, five hours for, uh, in a line for, for a product, uh, you know, in our in our system. I mean, I guess people wait in line for, for the new iPhone or for, you know, start, you know, the next Star Wars movie. Uh, but that's because those are people who are just insane. Um, you know, I, I don't wait in line for those things. And I enjoy those those products as well. But in the, in the private sector, that would literally never happen. Right. Because it's a supply and demand question. Unfortunately, supply and demand is a uh, law of economics that doesn't really apply to government. Because the reality is, you know, they don't really always care about the consumer. uh, And they certainly don't care about trying to increase the bottom line and try to improve, you know, what we would call profit in the private sector, what we might call excess revenue, um, you know, in the the government sector. So it's a bit of a question about incentives. um, But certainly, I think, look, your point, where I think you and I would agree is, let's put a blue ribbon commission together, five R's, five D's, people who are not in politics today, but have been in politics before, perhaps it's secretaries of the state and in other in in states in the past for, you know, people that really understand election law. And let's come up with, um, you know, a list of things that can increase the integrity of the vote, but also public confidence in the election systems. And it doesn't have to be anything that Congress has to, you know, enact. It should just be here, here are 15 or 20 or 50 things. We think every state should adopt. It's, it's basically a best, a best practices uh, list Uh, that would be valuable. And states could could you know perhaps what the federal government could say is if you are if you you enact you know seventy five percent or more of these you you get a certain level of funding if you enact fifty percent or more of these you get a little bit less if you enact twenty five percent or more of these you, you get a little bit less if you you know get less than twenty five percent you you get you get zero you know maybe we can use um, leverage leverage dollars uh, as an incentive in that
0: way um, oh. That is a very good point. that matches with what I said, that that a lot of what the Democrats wanted uh, um, w- want um, would be found unconstitutional under the Tenth Amendment, especially by this Supreme Court.
1: It could be. Um, and that's that's where you get back to maybe going to a best practices model rather than Congress you know mandating certain things uh, happen. Uh, um, you know, and the, the reality is Congress is actually not involved in elections for the most part, right? Election laws are set at the state level. They're conducted, collections are conducted by counties. Um, Congress, you know, provides a little bit of money to the states and things like that, but they're really not that involved, and I'm not sure we want them involved, to be honest with you. Uh,
0: Yes, we don't, uh, uh, yes, and I believe part of what the uh, Supreme Court wants to, uh, to do in the f- future th- This Supreme Court Is to Like uh, like I said to that Tenth Amendment So the states Decide most of the Election laws Themselves And one of the main Reasons why that uh, Kraken lawsuit From Texas there I say was uh, Thrown out unanimously By the Supreme Court Was that It, it flew in the face Of federalism itself Like uh, Pennsylvania yeah. Has no reason Telling Texas what to do Texas can't tell Illinois what to do And it's not just voting Same goes for abortion Which is why The Tenth Amendment Is what Amy Coney Barrett uh, Thinks about when uh, looking for a constitutional legal rationale to overturn Roe v. Wade, it's about more than abortion. It's about, even though she's pro life personally, uh, Scalia thought the same way. It was about the 10th Amendment.
1: Yeah, sure. Um, you know, and fe- look, federalism does matter. And look, I thought it was an interesting legal argument to say one state violating its own election laws and its own constitution uh, does affect other states because that state's electoral votes are at stake. I thought it was an interesting argument, and I thought it was probably worth the the Supreme Court hearing it. Uh, However, what would be better than one state suing another would be someone who has standing in a state where they believe the laws have been violated suing directly. Right. The problem is, is that you have you got to go through individual lawsuits in all these states. And and so the the uh, the plaintiff would have been the Trump campaign or the state GOP or a number of voters. And you got to go find all the evidence and put it all together, and put the legal defense fund together, and go fight that out in Pennsylvania, Michigan, Wisconsin, Georgia, Arizona, maybe Nevada. And that's a painstaking process. And it's clear that the Giuliani, Sidney Powell, Jenna L. Ellis, you know, legal effort was you know wholly inadequate up to the task. Um, the advantage of, of of a state-to-state lawsuit at the federal level is that only the Supreme Court has original jurisdiction, so it skips. The long, drawn-out process of district court and, and court of appeals, and then maybe getting an appeal to the Supreme Court, and then waiting to hear back the Supreme Court decides to grant serve, and then making arguments, and then hearing the Supreme Court ruling. There simply wasn't time you know, to, 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 uh, to do that. And I, I will say, look, they did have plans file, file file suit in some of these states, and for the most part, those lawsuits have either been dismissed due to lack of standing or they've been uh, denied. So it's not that they didn't try what I'm expl- what I'm what I'm describing. It's that they didn't try it early enough, and they certainly didn't present sufficient legal arguments to win uh, to win those cases.
0: Uh, yeah, and speaking of a uh, democracy, uh, we have to pay a lot of attention at home and make the tough compromise needed to sustain ours, indeed. But we also have to uh, champion democracy around the world, and I think this is a point where Joe Biden and many congressional Republicans. Uh, can um, agree on, because like I said uh, uh, when we met in uh, late August or September, was that uh, de- democracy is on the defensive globally right now, and despotism is on the rise, and uh, and y- yeah, Venezuela and Cuba, I don't like them, but I also don't like places like Hungary, which I'm sure you're aware, uh, Victor Orban, mm-hmm. uh, uh, like uh, because of COVID, uh, he made excuse to to tell the legislature, "All right, disband. I'll just rule by decree." Hungary now a full fledged dictatorship. Turkey, t- Turkey as well, um, and obviously. The, the menace that China is every day, the war about I mean, how China lied to us, and uh, how they're persecuting the, not just the Uyghurs, but even their tiny Jewish community, and uh, their crackdown on, on democracy and attempt to manipulate the global economy to use to their autocratic advantage is absolutely despicable. And obviously, Putin's Russia is uh, Putin's Russia with the dangerous propaganda they're uh, putting out themselves. Uh, but uh, I kind of made some policy recommendations to Joe Biden. I know for a policy expert, but I think we need to really take a hard stand on all of those countries. Like if I'm Joe Biden, when you read at WHO, you have to tell WHO, kick China out of the WHO for lying justice. I think Hungary and Turkey should be kicked out of NATO because they don't belong in NATO. They're no longer democracies. Uh, don't you think those are stands worth at least exploring for Biden?
1: You, you raise good points and good questions. Um, I, I'm concerned about having, having happening in Hungary as well. I've been concerned about what's been happening in Turkey for a long time. Uh, of course, you know, kicking Turkey out of NATO, uh, you know, could could threaten uh, not just regional security, but even more so, it could threaten the U.S.-Turkey relationship, which is a, a difficult one. Um, you know, Erdogan is a is a is a you know uh, uh, bloodless you know dictator at this point. Um, he may be marginally an ally of the United States, but he is not a reliable friend by any means, and he certainly uh, runs his country as a brutal dictator. Um, and so you know when you look at our military bases, you look at Inserlik uh, in, in Turkey, that has significant value, strategic value to the United States from military, national security and even diplomatic standpoint. So I, I get it, I'm with you. You, you, you raise good, good points. These are points of debate and discussion that need to happen. Uh, I wouldn't make these decisions cavalierly, uh, And I don't think but Biden will, but I, I do hope he takes on. Uh, that issue of democracy and supporting freedom around the world. But maybe that it probably doesn't mean risking American lives unless direct American national interests are threatened. Uh, but we have other level levers, uh, levers to use uh, in, on these issues, and uh, I, I think Biden will use them. How he uses them, I don't know. I think the odds he takes on China are low. I, I have very low expectations on that.
0: Sadly, I do too. Yeah. Yeah. Uh- Yes, uh, but it's important to know that uh, um, a lot of people like make this bogus argument that oh, there's left wing and right wing dictatorships. No, Vladimir Putin himself doesn't care what ideology you are. He 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 is Maduro's best ally for crying out loud.
1: (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. Well, yeah, it's you know it's tough. It's tough. Um, But you're right. I mean, we have to be sober about these regimes. We have to look at everything through the lens first of, of American interests, um, but then we have to look at the lens of, of you know, in these countries, how are, how are the citizens being treated? Uh, are fundamental rights protected? Uh, do they have private property rights? Do they have freedom of the press? Do they have freedom of speech? Do they have freedom of religion? Uh, and that doesn't mean, you know, necessarily that we're demanding those things, uh, with, you know, at the, at the point of a, of a spear uh, or a bayonet, uh, but it does mean that we can put pressure. Uh, exert pressure, and we can, you know, become stronger allies with democracies. Support them militarily, support them economically, support them diplomatically, uh, and we can isolate and undermine and and uh, and minimize uh, these other nations that are that are working uh, working this way. So it, you're right. the the, the threat of uh, of autocracy in the world is rising, and I think some on the left want to sort of point to Trump and say, oh, you know, Brazilian leader, the Hungarian leader. Are Trump-like figures, and they're looking at him as an example. I, I don't know how true that is. I, I really no tr-
0: no. Trump I mean, looks at them as an example. They are far more competent than Trump ever was,
1: in my opinion. Well, well, what I would say is, what I would say is, I think what Trump has um, has identified in the United States is a factor that's also true in other countries, and that is the the plight of the working class of the middle class is real, and it's real because of, of, of factors associated with globalization. Um, and, and, you know, moving away from traditional manufacturing um, and, and some of these kinds of issues. And so people like Bolsonaro uh, in Brazil and, and uh, Orban in and, and Hungary and in other countries have tapped into that and have tried to use that for their own political benefit. Um, so, well, I guess my point is, I don't think it's a Trump phenomenon. And I think personalizing around Trump is not helpful and really not relevant. Uh, all that matters is, what you know as a, as a, as a, the leader of the world, the free world, what do we stand for? What are our values? Uh, what are our principles? Uh, and what are we doing with our significant you know power around the world? Um, and so I, I think we have to stand up uh, for institutions like NATO. We have to stand up for our allies. We have to strengthen relationships with our allies. Uh, we have to isolate China. We have to isolate Russia. Uh, in my view, we have to isolate Iran. Um, yes. And there are you know there are policy options. Uh, to consider and, and you know biden may go one direction on something and Trump may go on another but i think there's a broad consensus in the middle that accepts what direction we need to go on a lot of these issues and 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 understands the difference between right and wrong
0: uh Definitely. There is definitely hope on that front. And he is Matt Mikowiak, ladies and gentlemen, Austin, Texas-based Republican strategist of the Potomac Strategy Group and the host of the acclaimed on Politics Podcast, which he has interviewed many people, including several, with different views of his own. Matt, thank you once again for joining us to have the, a fruitful conversation and building relationships that uh, the late Justices Ginsburg and Scalia would uh, probably would agree are essential to preserving the longevity of our democratic Republic. And, uh, but, uh, in the, in the spirit of unity, let's talk some football. After all, this is a sports podcast, mostly. Um, we, when you look at the NFL, we're down to the final three weeks of the season. When you look at the NFC, there's a battle for that number one seed. The number one seeds are extra point this year because they're the only seed with a buyout of the new playoff format. It looks like it's a two team race between the Packers and the saints. Who do you think ends up with that number one seed at the moment?
1: Yeah, that's a good question. If you look at the saints, um, I'm trying to remember what week we're in. I guess week... Um, 15. Week... Yeah, 15. Thank you. Uh, week 15, This I guess we're now in week 15. If you look at their game this, this past week, week 14, you know, Saints look terrible in the first half. And, you know, without Drew Brees, they're a different team. Uh, they have good defense. They have you know, some weapons at receiver, but they have a little uncertainty at, at quarterback. The Packers are interesting because they've been up and down this year, too. A lot of teams have been up and down. A lot of that's COVID-related. A lot of that's uncertainty with schedule. A lot of that's injuries. A lot of that's not having... Uh, you know, preseason, uh, you know, there's, there's a lot of factors this year. Um, I, it's hard to bet against, you know, Drew, uh, Aaron Rodgers, I really think. Um, and I think my, my guess is they're more likely to be the number one seed um, uh, because of Rodgers because he just finds ways to win because he's never really out of it. I think Saints are probably a better team. And if Breeze was there, I would, I would easily choose the Saints. Um, but I think uh, I think the Packers may find a way to get that number one seed. They were really on the edge of doing it this week. But, uh, but yeah, I think they're, they're going to be right there. It's going to be close one way or the other.
0: Oh yeah. Aaron Rodgers uh, he's playing out of his mind this year. He's definitely, he definitely came in as we all expected, uh, pissed off because of the, uh, selection of Jordan love in the first round of the, uh, 2020 NFL draft. But, uh, that said about the Saints. uh, I'm sure Justice Baird kind of hopes you're wrong because she's a native New Orleans and I would assume she's a Saints fan and wants uh, her hometown team to win one more in, uh, before Drew Brees rides off into the sunset. And uh, let's go to the AFC. And I am uh, very sorry to have to break this to you as a Steelers fan, but it kind of looks like the Kansas City Chiefs, the defending champs, are the uh, best team, not just in the AFC, but in the entire NFL right now. And uh, they have much more company uh, dipping at their heels right now than just the Steelers. You got uh, the Buffalo Bills. If the Cleveland Browns win tonight, for crying out loud, they might make some noise. God, Kevin Stefanski making a Coach of the Year campaign, in my opinion. Uh, but the Steelers and Bills, I think, are those two teams that the Chiefs have to be concerned the most about. And one week does not make a game. Uh, but last night in Buffalo kind of showed why. There's no easy answer here. But in your opinion, who should the Chiefs fear more, Steelers or Bills?
1: Yeah, I you know, the, the problems the Steelers are having are, are problems that have been visible for several weeks. It's not a question of losing the Washington uh, football team. Uh, it's not even a question of losing the Bills on the road. I mean, you know, they escaped a, a game with the Ravens. They played poorly a couple weeks before that as well. Their offense has been just atrocious for weeks and weeks and weeks. They can't run the ball. They're leading the league in drop passes. They have penalties. They have untimely turnovers. And to be to be honest with you, the single biggest problem is the Steelers have had uh, really considerable injuries. Uh, two of their four best defensive players are out for the year. Devin Bush, who, who plays uh, a oh. crucial middle linebacker position, uh, and now Bud Dupree, who's you know one of their defensive ends and is is, is in a franchise tag s- situation, was was really hoping for a big contract in the end of the year. He's out with an ACL. Um, so they've had some injuries and they've had some problems. You know they still have really good defense. They're still going to be in the mix. They're going to be a two seed or a three seed. I still believe in the AFC North, but they're not a threat. I think at this point against the Chiefs for the number one seed. And that's a shame, uh, although home field has never, you know, been less valuable than it is now with no crowds at home, uh, the Steelers really needed it because they needed a bye week. Uh, they lost their – they had a bye week at early, early in the season, week four, something like that. So they were going to play, you know, 15, 16, 17 weeks of football. So that number one seed was crucial for that reason. And I think that will probably come come to bite them uh, before it's all said and done. You know, the Chiefs are – you know, I heard uh, some. When yesterday say, yesterday say they thought the Chiefs were better than last year, and you know if you look at the record, you look at the stats, probably not true. But if you look at just the way they play, they're more complete now than they were last year. And Mahomes is still an incredible threat. You know, if you look at this Sunday's game, I mean, they were not impressive in the first half. I think they were held to I want to say zero points or three points something like that. Uh, but they turned it on the second half and then had a, a pretty you know pretty good victory. The bills are rising. Um, they got a good team. I, I, I thought they were pretty good. I'd not watched them play a lot until Sunday against the Steelers. And they are a complete team. A good defense. Uh, Stefon Diggs is an absolute number one receiver. Josh Allen's playing. I think an MVP MVP level season. Uh, he's a better quarterback than I even I thought he was. Um, they they have momentum right now, and uh, so I think all three of those teams could win the AFC. Uh, it's a question of you know who be winning Kansas City even without a crowd and, and you and, uh, hold, know, hold Patrick Mahomes to 14 or, six or 17 or 20 points or 21 points. Uh, but in the NFL, anybody can beat anybody. I mean, it's absolutely been the case. If you remember last year, it looked like the Ravens were unstoppable. Lamar Jackson was having this incredible season. Uh, and so the Tennessee goes in there and shuts them down entirely. And so anybody can beat anybody. It's a great thing about the NFL. It really is a, a league that has a lot of parity. These are all professionals. You forget that from time to time. You think, oh, these good teams just always win, the bad teams always lose. If you average it out, it's absolutely true that the poor franchises lose because of mismanagement, because of poor leadership, because of they don't develop players, because they lose their best players. But they seem to, you know, bad. At some point, bad luck just becomes bad management. You know, Uh, there's a reason the New York Jets are 0 and 12, and it's not because Sam is a bad quarterback. It's, It's because. They're a disaster franchise and have been as long as I can remember. Um, so I really think the 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 pathway to the Super Bowl is is wide open. I mean, you'd have to say Chiefs are the favorite, and then the Saints or the Packers are the favorite, and any any you know combination there in the Super Bowl would be a competitive game. But if you said to me, you know, would you take the Chiefs or would you take the Field on the AFC side to get in the Super Bowl? I'd take the Field. If you said to me, would you take the Packers, uh, you know, or the Saints? Or would you take the field to get the Super Bowl in the NFC? I might take the field there, too. It'd be close um, because you've got two chances there. I mean, I think it's pretty, pretty likely the Packers or the Saints are in the NFC Championship. Uh, at least one of them will be in the NFC Championship, and they may be there together. Uh, but I just think the NFL is wide open. And, you know, there's three or four teams in both conferences, I mean, even the Colts right now. I mean, I wouldn't, I wouldn't necessarily count, you know, the Indianapolis Colts out either. So there's a lot of competitive football to be played left. We've got three weeks left. The best teams play the best at the end. Uh, In December, the teams that play well in December are the teams that, that play well in the playoffs.
0: Oh, you hit it right on the head there. The NFL is definitely the League of Parity. It's why it gets more wide open each and every year. And the quote, the great Chris Bourbon, that's why they play the game. Matt McCoviac, thank you so much once again for joining us. Check out his Mac on Politics podcast. Follow him on Twitter at Matt McCoviac. And that concludes this special episode of Sports Grudge. And we'll be back in just a few weeks to preview the wildcard round of the 2020 NFL playoffs. But in the meantime, stay safe, stay sane, Stay healthy, stay awesome, Merry Christmas, Happy Hanukkah, Happy New Year. Thank you very much, everybody.